Good afternoon. The person at the podium is Bonnie Rogers. So just a short question, Bonnie, what was happening a few months ago in your mind and in your emotions? And how did your daughter help you and what happened? Well, actually, it started about four years ago. Um, an experience happened four years ago that almost caused me to lose my faith entirely, something I thought would never, ever happen. And I went through some extreme depression, despondency. Uh, the devil even used spiritualism. Um, am I not talking loud enough? Oh, uh, the devil even used spiritualism, superstitious, something I had dabbled in years ago before I was ever a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Uh, and many, I was coming to many wrong conclusions about innumerable things, and the depression got so great that um, I was even having trouble functioning from day to day. My family was greatly concerned about me and uh, didn't know what to do. But my daughter's on staff here at Heartland, and she uh, had remembered that Dr. Pandit had, had come here and given us some DVDs that she was quite impressed with. And so she shared those with me. And, uh, and through that and creation, the, the thin cord of faith that I had started to increase. And I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful, so thankful to the Lord that I can stand here before you and that I'm alive. God is good. He is a great God. He is a wonderful God. And this is just the short version of a longer testimony that if any of you would like to, to hear, I can share with you later. And I just want to say one thing. Don't ever, ever lay your Bible aside. Stay connected to your Bible and to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Amen. Stay connected to the Bible. And we will all say amen, praise the Lord. But the people outside there don't say that. They will say, why do you believe in the Bible? So we usually start giving a religious answer. Uh, but out there, like I said yesterday, the language is different. So let's look at a little different language that might be able to use. So let's get into the topic right now. First of all, the Bible, well, it's a piece of literature, so let's classify literature of the ancient days. Ancient literature is classified into four, basically folktale, legend, myth, and historical. Out of these four, which is the most reliable and credible? Historical. All right. What's a folktale? There's no attempt to state a real true story. The main intent is to be interesting and bring out a lesson or moral. So everybody knows that a folktale doesn't have to be real. Number two, a legend, it's probably based on a true story, but changes keep coming in. Exaggerations, embellishments, and make this ordinary story into a real superhuman one. And when do the changes begin? Generations after the event. Legends are not made in the same generation as the event. We use the word legend very loosely, like we say he's a basketball legend or a football legend. He's not a legend. He's just good at it. A legend is somebody who, after a few generations, they say, well, he could kick the ball, you know, uh, 50, 100 yards. And then later on, oh, he could kick it right off the stadium. 
And later on, maybe he could kick it to the moon because, you know, look at all the stuff that we see on the moon. I mean, that's what a legend is. Started off okay, um, but it changes over time. How long does it take? The time period on the screen? Centuries. Here's an example. This medallion, which was an example of, uh, of, uh, of how many years it takes, dates back certainly to the second century BC. If we put the Buddha's nirvana or death during the fifth century BC, now that's 300 years, then the artist who carved the medallion must have lived at a time when the memory of the blessed one, that is Buddha, was still very fresh in the minds of the people. In other words, 300 years, still very fresh. You can't change. In other words, what we are saying is that a legend takes a long time to form. It doesn't form just right away. Here's another one. The written literature was compiled by faithful, devoted followers centuries after the event. Remember that word. We'll, we'll come across it later on. Centuries. Though these records are separated from one another by a few hundred years, they are in fundamental agreement and we have every reason to accept them as reliable accounts. Uh, how about a myth? It is so far back in history that it's generally accepted as somebody's imagination. Somebody wrote it out. It's probably not true, and it usually involves the supernaturalist gods and goddesses and all supernatural activities. This is a myth. And the time period from where we get the myth is usually many centuries and even millennia or thousands of years. Historical. Here, the attempt by the author to state a real true story. There are no significant additions or deletions and no core changes. All writings have changes. Yes, all. But the question is, does it affect the story or are there peripheral changes? That's the question. And the closer it, is, it was written to the event, the greater the credibility. Now you see on the screen some letters and dashes. EV is the event. Whenever there's an unusual event, people make it into a story. And they pass it on from generation to generation. Unusual. I mean, really nice. And then some people say, well, uh, that's called the OT, oral tradition. Pass it on. And then after a few generations, uh, we might forget some details. So let's write it down. So somebody decides to write down the story. So the OT, which is the oral tradition, becomes now the written tradition, WT. And we do not have today any original manuscript of any of these writings. So what we have is the earliest manuscript, earliest copy. Those dashes that you have between those letters there are the gaps. What's the gap between the event and the time it became a well-established oral tradition? What's the gap between the oral tradition and the time it was written so it becomes a written tradition? And what's the gap between the written tradition and the earliest manuscript we have? So one question. If the gaps are wide, how, how credible is the writing, up or down? Down. And the gaps are really small, then the credibility goes up. So got it? So that's the classification of ancient literature. Let us look at these five great world religious literatures and see how they fare. The five great world religions, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, and Christianity. So here goes. Hinduism, the Rig Veda is the earliest text followed by the next three Veda texts. The next is an anthology, which is the Upanishads, and then the epic, meaning a great big story, the Ramayana, and then the, another epic, 
big long story, the Mahabharata in which is found the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is the kernel of Hindu thought. And it is also the baby of this list. But look at when it was given. Lord Krishna first spoke Bhagavad Gita to the sun god how far ago? How far away? Hundreds of millions of years ago. Now how far is that? How many of us can go back and check? <laughs> we can't. And so the encyclopedia, the ultimate encyclopedia of mythology states this. The Krishna, who is the story in the Bhagavad Gita, According to Hindu, what's the word? Mythology is an avatar or an incarnate of Vishnu, the god Vishnu, the preserver of the universe. Uh, Hindus also have three, triune god, Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. So Vishnu is one of them who became incarnate. So what is it saying? That the Hindu stories are mythological because they are just so far back. Uh, the story of uh, the Bhagavad Gita is where it came to us. It was millions of years ago, and then it came back to the, Christi uh, to the human race. It was lost and then came back. But when it came back, also is 5,000 years ago, the starting of the present age of the Hindus. Now that's about 3,102 BC. Even that is too far. So we have to acknowledge, and I've spoken to many of these uh, scholars, we all acknowledge that the Hindu scriptures are, or the writing, the stories are mythological. Not wrong, mythological. Buddhism, there are four statements in chronological order. The humanity of the Buddha is also expressed by a Theravada monk. Who is a Theravada monk? A monk who lived at the time of Gautama Buddha. He was contemporary with Gautama Buddha. And this is what he said. Was he, Gautama Buddha, not born at Lumbini? And did he not complete existence at Kusinara? Just like anybody else. Born here, died here. Sentence two. Soon after the passing of the master, a change began to set in. We are wondering whether he was really born here and really died there. I'm not sure. How about the third statement? At the beginning of the Christian era, do you know how many years that is? About 450 to 500 years later. The transcendental nature of the Buddha became more and more pronounced. What's the transcendental nature? Let's just call it supernatural features. Now he's no longer just an ordinary man. Some supernatural features are, are being pushed into it. And number four, at the beginning, no, in one of the most important pieces of Mahayana literature, Mahayana Buddhism came on the scene about 700 to 1,000 years later. And by the time that came, there's not much of the man left in the Buddha. He is now an exalted being who has lived for countless ages in the past and will continue to live forever. So what has happened? A real true story, he was born here and he died here 700 years later. No, he was not exactly born, he was always in existence before that and he really didn't die here, he will be in existence forever. What is that of the classification? Legend. Because it started out okay. Yep, like an ordinary human being, but changed. Again, not wrong. But the credibility will always, hmm, what, if it's legendary, then what about the doctrines? They also might have changed. I don't know, but the story is legendary. Judaism, I did not classify it. You can try the, you know, the Talmud and the Old Testament, and people have done it. I just left it unclassified, and I don't mind it being unclassified because um, there are so many authors. Some are very accurate and some are 
questionable, but questionable doesn't mean wrong. Question means just, oh, I don't know. The way you approach the Old Testament Judaic scripture is not by this study. So if you have a question, we might have a Q&A time. I hope we do. You can ask for it. How about Islam? The Quran was put together in writing by 652 CE, common era, same as AD, within 20 years of Muhammad's life. The writing is confined to one generation, but Muhammad did not write it, and most Muslims do not know even this part. They feel that Muhammad wrote it. No, he didn't write it. In fact, the word Quran, anybody know what the meaning of the word Quran is an Arabic word? It means recitation. And the, why did they state it as a recitation? Was well, because Muhammad could not read or write. He would recite. And that's why it's called the Quran. But he did not write it. And the only person who was inspired in Islamic tradition is Muhammad. Nobody else was inspired. So if he did not write it, then we have to deduce that uninspired individuals wrote it. It was compiled twice within a span of 18 years. And after the second time, it was compiled and put together in what we have today. It's called the Uthmanic Recension. All the manuscripts were ordered destroyed by the third caliph, whose name is Uthman. So today, no scholar can actually vouch that this is what Muhammad told us. Because all the manuscripts are destroyed. What we have is a government copy of what they said should be there. It's not... Too bad, but there's questions. When you come to the Christian writing, which is the New Testament, the earliest manuscript is between 114 to 134 AD. It's a part of John, the book of John, in the John Rylands Library in Manchester, UK. The original manuscripts were within 20 to 50 years of the life of Jesus, confined to one generation and no core changes. Most of us think that the um, earliest writings are the Gospels. But no, the earliest writings of the New Testament are the writings of Paul. Paul's letter out predate the Gospels. So think, so by the time Paul came to write it out, the story was already set because he came later than into the movement than the others. So when he wrote his writings, the story was already set. In other words, the oral tradition was already done. But really, there's one more point. What is the earliest writing that we know on earth? The earliest Christian writing. It's not in the Bible. It is here. Eliezer Sukenik, professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, found two ossuaries. What are ossuaries? Receptacles like pots in which you put the dead man's bones and then bury it. That's how they buried the people those days. So on those ossuaries are found the earliest known Christian writing. They, they looked at the coins and some of the artifacts around it, and they dated those ossuaries to before AD 41, within 10 years of the life of Jesus. One of them reads, Jesus God, etched on that ossuary. And this other one reads, Jesus ascended one. So let's take note. It took 700 to 1,000 years to change Buddha to a god from an ordinary being, human being. Here in 10 years, we have gone from the event to the oral tradition to the written tradition to the earliest manuscript. This is the actual writing on an ossuary. In other words, there was no change. The first statement about Jesus was he's God. There is no change of this person, and therefore... The earliest writing refers to who he really was. This is not legendary. This is not mythological. 
And in, histor in the historian's eyes, there's no gap at all. This is the only writing that has no gap. We can already say emphatically there's no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about AD 80, except probably for the book of Revelation. That is Sir William, Sir William Albright, who is an American archaeologist, one of the greatest American archaeologists. The next one is a Jewish archaeologist. Again, one of the top guys. This is what he said. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. That's very unusual for ancient writings. Because when you write something on your own, you're bound to make a little mistake somewhere. So this gives us some credibility to the writing itself. This third archaeologist that I'm going to quote is Sir William Ramsey. He's a British archaeologist and arguably the greatest that was in the last generation. He was doing his work in the same uh, level as the first century AD. And that's where he was doing his digs and his archaeological finds. And during, uh, he was one who did not believe that the New Testament was written as the New Testament in the time period. He had serious doubts. So he didn't bother about the New Testament. Here he was doing his digs and then suddenly it comes across something that perplexed him. And he wondered what the explanation of what he had found so he asked this document and that document and this authority and that authority. And finally, somebody said, well, you've, uh, you've, you've left aside one. Luke has written the book of Acts. And it's in the same, same, same period. Look at that. So he said, but the book of the New Testament is not all that uh, credible. No, just look at it. And lo and behold, when he read the book of Acts, that solved his perplexity. Oh, all right. And some more digging, got caught again, unable to explain it, uh, looked at this document and that, and finally, book of Acts. Luke's Acts helped him solve that mystery. This went on for a period of 30 years. How many years? 30 years. And after that, this is what Sir William Ramsay said. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians, not religious historians, the very greatest of historians. And look at what Norman Geisler, a Christian apologist, said. In all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without a single error. In other words... He, when he mentions a country or, a, or a, an area and he mentions, say, a sea or a lake or an island, if you go down there, it's exactly as he said. There's no difference between the truth of what we see today in geography and what Luke had written in history. They match. So hmm, when I was doing this study, I, I was doing it as an inquirer. So I said, hey, as an inquirer. The New Testament appears to be solidly historical. Don't you think so? At least with what the arguments we had made before. So uh, let's stretch out and take a deep breath. Yep. So we've come to a point where we are looking at the New Testament and it looks like, hey, it's got some, some backing over there. So here's what I did next. I looked at... Um, what everybody acknowledges as historical writings of that period. 
Caesar's Gaelic Wars, Herodotus History, Tacitus Annals. And once you're looking at historical pieces of literature, then we look at three features that give it credibility uh, more than just saying it's historical. Number one is the gaps. Number two are the number of manuscripts. We'll come to it. And number three, where was the author uh, in relationship to the story that he or she wrote? So number one, Caesar's Gaelic Wars. It was written in 100 BC. Earliest manuscript we have is 900 AD. The gap is how much? 1,000 years. Herodotus history, gap is 1,300 years. Tacitus Annals, 1,000 years. In other words, what we are saying and what is there before us is there is a gap in which nobody can vouch that anything was deleted, added, or modified for 1,000 years. And yet we call it historical. Can you see that? Yeah. You can go into your MAs and PhDs in any university today and quote these authors, Caesar's Gaelic Wars and Herodotus and Tacitus, and you're okay because you're quoting a historical piece of literature. Everybody acknowledges it. But look at the gap. 1,000 years in which nobody can vouch for it. And look at the gap in the New Testament. It's 20 to 50, and actually what we just saw with Eliezer Sukenik's findings, it's less than 10 years. What a difference, 10 years and 1,000 years? So this is what I sometimes say. If you can swallow 1,000 years, why are you gagging with 20? <laughs> Isn't that fair? As an inquirer, I'm asking that. So you should not. In other words, 20 years, by all means, yes, sir, it's historical. It is not legendary. It is not mythological. That's number one. Number two is the number of manuscripts. Why do we look at the number of manuscripts? Because if there are just three manuscripts, one here and one maybe in Culpeper and one in Orange, then one night a few of us could get together and say, we don't like that paragraph. Mm -mm. So that night we go to each of those three and change it. And since all three are changed, nobody knows it has been changed, but the text has been corrupted. But if there are 50 manuscripts, one here, one there, one in Washington, D.C., one in some other place, Frederick, and one in Friedberg, and spread all around, you can't do that in one night. You can't do it maybe in a week. Because somebody will find out that this manuscript says this, but this says something else. They'll start investigating, and then you find out that it's been corrupted. And once you know it's been corrupted, then we try to figure out which one it is. Therefore, if we have many manuscripts saying the same thing, it can vouch or point towards the credibility of the text. Are we okay with that? Yes, many spread out saying the same thing. Then the text is probably reasonable. Look at the number of manuscripts of these on the screen. Caesar's Gaelic Wars has 10 manuscripts worldwide. Herodotus History, 8. Tacitus Annals 20. By the way, one of the things I tell people when I, when I present this is, uh, you've got to be honest. What's honesty? I call it the wow factor. In other words, if something is impressive, what are you supposed to say? Wow. wow. Are you ready? Yeah, you should be ready to say. And don't say wow just because you got your point, good says wow. Even if they get their point, you should say wow. That's being honest. Because you're asking them to say wow to you. Only then we'll be fair and square. But honesty is the wow factor. So here it is. Uh, 8, 10, 20. Herodotus' history is, said 8. 
the champion of Greek literature is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad is backed by 643 manuscripts. Oh, somebody said, wow, eh? <laughs> the others, of course, <laughs> you have, your writing has been more manuscripts backed. 640, yeah, it's, it's a lot compared to 8 and 10 and 20. What if I told you that the New Testament is backed by 686 manuscripts? It is backed by 5,686 manuscripts. Greek manuscripts. If you add the Armenian and the Arabic and the Latin and all those, you know how many manuscripts back the New Testament? 24,900. What did we say? Gaps? No gaps. Number of manuscripts? Whoa. How many of you can go and now change in everything in one night or one year and 10 years even? You can't do that. So the credibility of the text appears to be fair. The third point we said was, where were these authors? Were they close to the story? If they are close, then the credibility goes up. If they are far away, then we can question it. Maybe the distance is not geographical. Maybe the distance is in generations. Maybe two or three generations later on you wrote the text. Look at where these authors were. We did not follow fables, but were what? Eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Do you know that this book, the New Testament, is the only ancient historical book written by eyewitnesses? There is not another on the face of this earth. From that hour, that disciple, who is that disciple? John, took her Mary to his house. So where is John? He is right there. How about Luke? When we sailed over the sea, we came to Myra. Luke is right, saying we. So are these authors near the story or far away? Near, near not just near. Inside the story. They are participants in the story. And you cannot get any closer than inside. Because if you try to get it any closer, you'll go outside. <laughs> yeah. You, if you don't know that you are in this conference room and you want to get into the conference room, then you'll get out. So you can't get any closer than this. So what are we saying? In real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. No other ancient book has anything like such early and plentiful text, testimony to its text, and no unbiased scholar would deny that the text that has come down to us is substantially sound. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably among ancient prose writings. Not just ancient religious prose writings. Among all writings. We begin with the Mayans and the Sumerians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and the Indians and the Chinese and the Egypt and the Roman and the Greek. Put all the writings of the ancient world on a flat table like this, given the same chance, and this bitty little book called the New Testament will rise up among them as the best attested historical piece of literature in the world. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. So I don't tell them first that Jesus saved your sin. I tell them first, look at the literature. 
Do you think it's worth reading it? And when they look at it, they say, well, I don't know. So here's the next statement. To be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no document of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. In other words, you don't like it? Oh, I don't know whether it's historical. Okay, but set it aside. What will you have? If you set it aside, you can't say a single word about any pharaoh or the Chinese dynasties, about Babylon or Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar, nothing. You set this aside, you've set the whole of antiquity aside. Everything is inferior to the New Testament. Many times people say, oh, I don't know whether we need to check this New Testament versus against some of the secular historical writings. You know, it's exactly the opposite. This is the best. This is the reference point. This has qualities that has the highest level of historicity. So if you want to check one with the other, you check those against this. This is the top. This has all the features that has it. So while the Quran and the New Testament are to be considered historical, the New Testament has the highest credibility and integrity of text among literature of the entire ancient world. There are questions, but don't discard it because of the questions because if you do discard it, you will choose another one that has more questions. So which one would you prefer? <laughs> best? I said I'll choose the best. Fair enough? Okay, let's take a stretch out again. <laughs> All right, that was one question. We're going to do only two, and then we'll ask four questions after that. The second question I asked was this. Uh, all the writings are actually quite impressive if you read them. I know some of us don't do that. I was searching, so I did it. I went to the writing, then read and read and asked. And then I had a question, and this was the question. These writings describe a message that came down from that other realm, from the other dimension. I can't go there to check whether it came from there. So how do I know it came from there? So that was my question. Is there anything in the writing that tells me to check it out? Check it out like this. If, if you check it out like this, it might have come from there. That was the question. Test it for authenticity. So when we enter the Hindu scriptures, this is what it said. We have to accept it as it is, otherwise there's no point in trying to understand the Bhagavad Gita and speak a Lord Krishna. In other words, don't test it out. There's nothing, no test in the writing. You like it, you take it, you don't like it, spit it out, but there's no test there. However, they have a test, and I'll tell you to after the Buddhist one. The Buddhism is the same. The second statement on the screen is absolute truth is unconditional, undeterminate, and beyond thought and word. So it's completely beyond thought and word. How can you test it? You can't. So these two scriptures, the Hindu and the Buddhist, do not, allow, do not describe a test in the writing. However, they do describe a test. And the test is this, check it out in your experience. Yeah, take it up, live it, and then you'll know. It really is something good. Now, isn't that a good test? I think it's good. Fair enough. You just make it like a real test, so I got to test it out in my life. Fine. The only problem with that test is not that it's a good or bad test. Every religion has that as a test. Didn't get it? 
if every religion has it as a test, it's not a test. If I gave you directions to my house and I say, hey, when you come to this point, turn right at the tree that has green leaves. <laughs> exactly. So that's not a sign. When you give a test, it should, it should be something that I can recognize. Don't tell me that it's your experience that must do it because every religion says that's it. None of the religions ever say just read it and you'll go to heaven or nirvana or paradise. Everyone says you read it and put it into practice. Then you'll get it there. So, yeah, it's a good test, but it is not really a test. Because all of them have it. Islam, there is a test. If men and jinn, jinn are creatures who are in between angels and humans. If men and jinn come by to produce a book akin to this Quran, they would surely fail to produce like a ten chapters or even one chapter. So this is the challenge that the Quran says, gives us. Please, can you, anyone produce a book like the Quran? Or ten chapters like there? Or one chapter like it's inside there? Well, it is a test. And I was quite happy that there was a test because I was doing a search and a study. And I said, oh, good. Let me check it out. Because it's describing a test. But the moment I started, there were four things that just were snags. It stopped me from doing the test. Here are the four. It does not tell what aspect to be equaled. If you tell me to equal one of you, the first thing I'll ask is how? Shall I equal in dress? Shall I equal in height? Shall I equal in physical ability? Shall I equal in mental ability? Um, good grades or what? Looks? What shall I equal? If you do not tell me what the feature that should be equaled, it is not a test. Because I'm quite sure I can find a book that's bigger than the Quran. Then suppose we are doing it only what is bigger than I've won. So if you don't tell me what the feature to be tested, it's not a test. Number two, what's the method of comparison? Will it, will it be a subjective method of comparison or an objective method? And if it's an objective, what's the way in which you give marks to this and marks to that? This one got 20, maybe that and 25, so 25 wins. If you don't tell me the method of comparison, you're not telling me a test. Number three, who will be the judge? Who will judge whether I have brought another writing that is equal, better, or worse? So if you don't tell me who the judge is, then by default, who is the judge? Who is? The person who is doing the test. And I was doing the test, so then I'm the judge. If I'm the judge, the case is finished. Why? Because I've read so many of Arabic works, of course, they're translated into English, that are beautiful. Khalil Gibran, Omar Khayyam, Jalaluddin Rumi, beautiful, lilting words that will amaze anyone. Shakespeare in English. How about my own country? I come from India. I come from the state of Bengal. The state of Bengal produced the only Nobel laureate that we have from India, and he's a Nobel laureate in literature of, of all. His name is Rabindranath Tagore, and he wrote a little book called Gitanjali. Even today, if I go back to my own state, and I hear my relatives read the chaste Bengali, my jaw just drops open because it is so beautiful. I can't imagine any other writing that will beat it. It might be equal. I don't know how many of you have read the Quran, anyone?
Whose name? Laureate, yeah. Rabindranath Tagore. T-A-G-O-R-E. Yeah. So I can't, consider, I can't think of any writing that, is, that, can, uh, that can be that. However, I, I, like I said, anyone written, uh, read the Quran? I feel, this is my personal opinion, now I'm the judge, because you didn't tell me who the judge is, so I'm the judge. Even the book of Isaiah will beat that. By the way, in prose, Isaiah is my favorite. I just love the way he describes things. Prose. But the fourth one is really the one that clinches the whole thing. In Islamic tradition, this Quran that came down to the human race through Muhammad is actually from a mother book kept in heaven. It's a golden book and it's written in Arabic. That is why it came to the human race in Arabic. In the Quran, it says, I, Allah, have given you a book in Arabic. And it's the fourth book that Allah sent down. Not the first. The first one, Taurat, Torah, given to Musa, Moses. The second book that Allah sent down to the human race is the Zabur, the Psalms, given to Daud, David. And the third book that Allah sent down to the human race is the Injil, the Gospel, given to Yeshua, Isa, Binasa, Maryam, Jesus, the son of Mary. And the fourth book is the Quran. But the Quran that came down is only in the Arabic language. And that's why if you see people reading the Quran in orthodox style, they go this way. Why? Because it is written, written in rhythmic style. So you cannot really translate the Quran. Because the message in the Quran is not just the words. It is the rhythm and the sound of Arabic. That is the message. So how can you translate it? So if I must really equal the Quran, I must write in Arabic. And the Arabic that is in the Quran is not the regular Arabic people speak in the Arabian Peninsula today. Those people who speak Arabic will not be able to really understand the Quran. The Quran is a special type of Arabic that only those scholars can read and tell you what it is. So how many people in the world can do the test? I calculated about 0.05. So 99.95 people on earth cannot do the test. Then how can you call it a test? Are you with me? These four things knocked it off. I can't do your test and if I cannot do it, uh, how many of us know Arabic here? Then none of you can do the test. Then it's not a test. Sorry to you if there's any Muslim. I, I'm not against you. I'm just stating that if you say Arabic, I can't do it. And most likely even you can't do your Arabic because I, all my <laughs> Muslim friends don't know Arabic. Most of them don't. Not that Arabic. When it comes to the... Christian, I put together the Judeo-Christian together. Because the test is just that. But to get to the test, I would like to read a statement by a, a very brilliant scientist from France. His name is Pierre Simon Laplace. He was known as the Sir Isaac Newton of France. And he lived soon after Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was a church-going Christian. Pere Simon Laplace was an avowed atheist. Now, atheists do not describe any mind apart from human minds. They don't. But in this statement, he does. And we will use that as a test. 
He called it the scientific determinism. That's a little long sentence and a few sentences together. I'll read the whole thing out and I'll tell you what he's saying. Scientific determinism is this. We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect, mind, which at a certain moment would know all the forces that set nature in motion and all position of all items of which nature is composed, if this intellect, this mind, were also vast enough to submit these data for analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, for such a mind, nothing would be uncertain and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. It's called scientific determinism, and this is what he means to say. If there is a central command, a mind, an intellect, that knows every bit, every particle in the universe, and knows every characteristic and every property of every particle in the universe, and also knows every governing law that governs every particle in the universe, then to that intellect, nothing would be uncertain. He could look at this pointer, and he could look at every bitty little thing that made up the pointer, and he could go back 200 years and tell exactly where every atom was. Yep, because he knows everything. He knows the, every atom. He knows all the properties. He knows all the laws that govern every particle. He could also do another thing. He could look at this and he could go forward 200 years and say exactly where any atom will be 200 years from now. Why? Because he knows everything. He knows all the movements. He knows all the laws. Are you with me? Got it? That's what he said. In other words, Scientific determinism saying this, that if there is an intellect that knows everything in the universe, then nothing would be uncertain to that intellect. Past, present, future is just the same. That's what he was saying. Stretch out. <laughs> because we need some oxygen in our brains. <laughs> Take a deep breath. So in other words, they're saying this, that only this kind of an intellect can break the time barrier. No human can do that. In fact, uh, when you look at physics, the science of physics, everything is symmetrical. In fact, the scientists who do real science in physics, they stand back and they're amazed at what they call the elegance of physics. Why? Because it's so symmetrical. If it goes up, it can also go down. If it went to the east, it can also go to the west. It's symmetrical except for one thing. The only observational entity that is not symmetrical is time. Time moves in only one direction. It can't go backwards. That's not symmetrical. So the question is, if that's the case, then if anybody can break the barrier of time, that person or that mind is supernatural. That's exactly the test in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. Present your case, says the Lord. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's, and Isaiah's word is God, but we'll put Pere Simon Laplace's word, that we may know that you are that intellect. Tell us. So if I'm sitting here and say, I am the intellect, how are you going to check me out? Well, you can't except for one thing. You could ask me to predict what will happen next week. And you could ask me to predict what will happen next month. 
and uh, next year. And five years from now, and if they all come exactly as predicted, then you might have identified the intellect of Pierre Simon Laplace. Fair enough? That's the only way you can do it. But that's the test. Tell us beforehand. What's it called? Predictive prophecy. Before it happens, tell us. And you must, uh, predictive prophecy has at least two caveats to it. Number one is, um, once you predict, you must not go and do it yourself. Because in the, in the writing, there are predictions. For example, in the Quran, Muhammad did write that Mecca would be destroyed and burned. And Abu Lahab, who lived there, will be killed. And then he took his own army and did it. That's not predictive prophecy. Predic you must be away from it. Fair enough? Yes. Another one is that it should be testable. You should be able to check it out. The Hindus do have a prophecy. We have cycles, ages. We are today in what is called the Kali Yuga. Age. Yuga is age. It started in 3102 BC. And the prediction is that it will come to an end when the 10th incarnate of the god Vishnu comes to this earth, and uh, that will signal the start of the next age. This is the worst of all the ages. The fourth one is actually the first one, and it's the golden age. That's the prediction. But when will that occur? 427,000 years hence. Now, who's going to check that out? <laughs> That's why I said they have, they have caveats. They have conditions. A prediction, just, just don't make a prediction. First of all, don't do it yourself and let it be testable. Let's look at one prediction this afternoon. In the book of Jeremiah, the 51:36 is that I will make her springs dry. Her is Babylon. And verse 37, Babylon shall become a heap without an inhabitant. He wrote this about 595, 596 BC. At that time, Babylon was the greatest, most fortified city in the world. You know, our walls are about, say, 18 inches thick. This wall, 18 inches thick. You know how thick the walls of Babylon were? It was a double wall. And today, when you look at the you know, foundations, you can go and measure. 87 feet thick at the bottom. It'd go up like this. But at the top also, it's broad enough for two chariots to run side by side on the entire perimeter of 25 miles. Big wall. How can you bang it down? You can't. How high are the walls of Babylon? This is about 12 feet. The walls of Babylon went 175 to 300 feet. So how are you going to climb over that wall? Well, you've got to have a long ladder. But you have, if you have the long ladder, you've got to bring it close to the wall. But you can't come close to the wall because Babylon is surrounded by a moat. And the moat is as big as the wall, the volume. How are you going to come anywhere close? But you can't come anywhere close by. The only way you can defeat Babylon then is to lay siege. In other words, surround it, basically at the gate. And don't let anybody go in and out. Sooner or later, your food which is from the farmlands outside, will cease to come in, and then you have no food, you'll starve, and you'll come out with a white flag. That's laying a siege. Give up. But you've got to keep your soldiers at the gate. No fighting, just look at that, stare. And how are you going to pay your soldiers then? From your own coffers, from your bank account. 
So you've got to be quite a, quite a king, quite an emperor, quite a military general to have lay siege because all you do is pay your soldiers to sit and look and stare. The soldier's uh, salary is actually by fighting. The booty you get, that you share. But here, don't fight, just look. So sieges don't last endlessly. Six months, one year, one and a half years, two years, just paying your soldiers for doing nothing. Three years would be, a, I'd say, maximum. Why would anybody in Babylon laugh at you trying to lay siege? Because in the storehouses in Babylon, there was enough food for everyone for a period of 20 years. Now, how are you going to beat that kind of a city? But it was beaten by Cyrus the Great. He was winning all his wars until he came to Babylon. He said, man, if I get Babylon, I'll be world emperor. How to get that? So scouting around. By the way, Babylon was supplied by river. In fact, Babylon sat on a river, the river Euphrates. It went on one end of Babylon and came out the other. So it got its water supply right there in the city. While Cyrus, and this is now we refer to traditional writings, Herodotus does mention this, that while Cyrus was going around scouting to find out how he could get Babylon, his horse on which he was riding died in one of the tributaries of the river Euphrates. Now, generals in those days, kings and monarchs of those days were sometimes quite eccentric. So he got angry with the river. This river killed my horse. I want this river dry. And he told his generals, I want it dry. It killed my horse. So history tells us that they did it. The generals got together and they dug anywhere from 80 to 300 small aqueducts beside the river Euphrates and drained it dry. And when they drained it, Cyrus saw his way into the city on the riverbed and Babylon fell in one night without a single blood or drop of bloodshed. As soon as he came in, the people accepted him because we don't want our king, we want you. But sooner or later, the, it, it deteriorated and it fell apart. Today, few words evoke as many images of ancient decadence, glory, and prophetic doom as does Babylon. And yet the actual place 50 miles south of Baghdad is flat, hot. What's the next word? Let's go back to what the, it said. Babylon shall become a heap without an inhabitant. 2,500 years later, Babylon is still without an inhabitant. How did it fall? I will make her springs dry. How many such predictions do you want fulfilled before you can say, we might have identified the intellect of Pierre Simon Laplace. Five, six, ten. Anyone venture a number that will impress you? That we can check out, we can say it was done here, and it was prophesied here, it was fulfilled here, we saw it. Beforehand it was. No, no number, I'll give mine. I thought if twelve were there, twelve really good ones, I'd say, hey, we might have identified that intellect, that mind. Do you know how many there are? No, I didn't do the counting myself. And these scholars who do it, they go nitpicking and they do little bitty, bitty, bitty ones. I don't do the bitty ones, the big ones. But when they counted all the bitty ones and the big ones, do you know how many? There are 600. 
prophecies that have been fulfilled in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. 322 refer to one individual. 24 to 25, that's twice what I wanted, came to pass in one weekend. Wow. Nobody said wow. Yeah. So what are we saying? Here's some statistics. Peter Stoner, he's writing about this question of what are the chances that it could happen by itself? 48 prophecies about one man. If one man fulfill all 48 prophecies, it would give you only one chance in 10 to the power of 157. That's a huge number. So I put some numbers on the screen to tell you what that number is like. The elementary particles in the entire universe comes to about 10 to the power of 84. The total time in seconds of the universe, if it was 5 billion years old, is 10 to the power of 18 seconds. The estimated interactions per second is 10 to the power of 20. So the total chance that our universe affords is 10 to the power of 84 times 10 to the power of 18 times 10 to the power of 20, a total of 10 to the power of 122. That's the total chance that the entire universe affords. But we need more than that for just 48 prophecies. So how many universes do we need? 10 to the power of 35. All those zeros you can see on the screen. That many universes we need for one person to fulfill 48 prophecies by himself, without anything. Therefore, it is statistically impossible. And if it is statistically impossible and it happened, then it didn't happen by itself. It was orchestrated. That's why it happened. And it was orchestrated. Now we know by somebody who could break the barrier of time because he said before it happened. So he can break the barrier of time. We might have identified the intellect, the mind of Pierre Simon Laplace, whom Isaiah called God. Two statements on the screen. I want, to, I want you to see the similarity of the statements. One by Pere Simon Laplace, an atheist. The other by E.G. White, who happens to be a believer and some people even call her a prophetess. But look at the identi identical ways in which it is described. Pere Simon Laplace, for such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. And the prophetess, believer, he that ruleth in the heavens, he would be the same as the intellect, the person, is the one who sees the same as eyes, the end from the beginning, the one before whom the mysteries of the past, same word, and the future, same word, are alike, same word. Can you see those five words are exactly the same from a complete hard-nosed atheistic scientist and a full-fledged believer in God. So if Multiple sources are saying the same thing. A brilliant atheistic scientist saying the same thing as a respected believer in God. And it's found in ancient literature and verifiable secular history. Then we have to give the credit where credit is due. In other words, the Judeo-Christian scriptures is this. It is the best attested historical piece of literature. Least gaps in time and actually no gaps. Greatest manuscript and evidence and authors were part of the story itself. And it is the only writing that permits an open test. Anybody can check this out. You don't have to have any, any special characteristics. A little bit of money. You can buy a ticket to Baghdad. <laughs> and you can see the ruins even today. By the way, both Isaiah and Jeremiah were prophets. Acclaimed prophets. And both of them said, 
those ruins will not be inhabited by humans, but they will be inhabited by wild animals. And they mention one specific wild animal, the jackal. Captain Thomas Mary was one of the captains in the American army that went into Iraq in the Iraq war. He was also an archaeologist. So he had studied all this stuff and he was well acquainted with this prophecy. He was also well acquainted with the fact that around in, in, in Iraq you would find the ruins of Babylon. So when he went in with the army, he asked his general permission to visit the ruins of Babylon. And there was a lull in the fighting, so the general said, okay, you can go, but go only by night. Not in the daytime. So he chose a full moonlight night so that he could at least see. And he told his platoon of soldiers, we're going to go to the ruins of Babylon. And one of the predictions is that you'll not find any humans there. And number two, they're the animals that live there. So they all went, moonlight night. And they found bricks broken down. And some bricks were the original ones, way down there. Nebuchadnezzar's books, uh, the, the, the bricks. And they found another set of bricks, stamped by Saddam Hussein. He was trying to rebuild Babylon. But everything is in ruins. Big gaps and holes. And while they were standing, that full moonlight night, out from those holes runs a family of jackals. That platoon of soldiers looked at those jackals and they almost saluted the jackals. They were so <laughs> amazed because Captain Thomas Mary had already told them about this prediction. They would live there <gasps> in ruins. No human jackals. What do you say to this? You know what I'd say? Yeah. I'd say give me the Bible. Thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.